Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, depending on where you're listening to the podcast. Welcome to the Writing Glitch, Hacking Dysgraphia, No Pencil Required. You know, my heart really breaks for Ben. His mom was sitting in an IEP meeting. She was trying to explain his writing challenges, and nobody understood her. You see, Brian had just been expelled from the third elementary school. He was eight years old. How can kids get expelled from elementary school? Well, it was because he was becoming violent, but nobody was hearing what he was saying. If it wasn't for Kristen, one of my students, understanding what mom was describing as dysgraphia, he would have not been successful at that school as well. Long and short of it is we have a brand new IEP in 30 days, which is crazy, uh, impossible in most uh, settings in the United States. And Ben is now like loving school because he's actually learning and engaging and excelling. So mom did not have to quit her job. She did not have to homeschool him. He is doing exceptionally well at this new school. And that is what fills my heart with joy is when kids are excelling at school. My name is Sherry Datter. I am an occupational therapist recovering dysgraphic and host of The Writing Glitch, Hacking Dysgraphia, No Pencil Required. I believe that the 21st century classroom and writing challenges are going to be so different here in the next few years than they have been traditionally. What I'd like to do today is welcome Joe Hutton to the podcast. He is a professor. He says he wears many hats, but this gentleman just blows my mind with everything that he's doing. He is an Englishman married to a South African. Well, that's one thing that's very unusual. Irish background. He lives in Dublin. He is a teaches college. He's a photographer. He does education about photography. He is the author of one book on photography. He is the University College Dublin Innovation Academy Fellow for 2021. Ooh, good job, Joe. Joe is passionate about education, especially on the online space, helping others reach their dreams and fulfill their potential. What drives him in all his endeavors, a regular podcast guest, Joe has delivered over 200 online talks, classes, and webinars since March of 2020 lockdown. That's incredible. That is a lot of online talk. But today, we're really going to talk about engaging students in an innovative remote teaching setting. So today, how are you, Joe? I am great, Sherry. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm looking forward to today. And I have to stop and say thank you to Dada Educational Consulting for being our sponsor today. They provide a dysgraphia course, and the course really builds awareness. It provides practical interventions and lesson planning and helps you develop your own lessons and really strategically place interventions amongst your day to help maximize education for all kids. It's not for special education. It's for regular education. So parents, teachers, therapists, when you're thinking about dysgraphia, 
it can impact those kids that you're not thinking about as well. So if you go to sherry.org.com, go to the calendar, you can click on the next uh, featured event. And usually they are the second Wednesday of the month, but you have to check because sometimes we get a holiday in there that messes everything up. So without further ado, Joe, I'm going to turn the mic over to you. Tell us a little bit about photography, gardening, professor, podcast host, like tell us who you are. (laughs) Well, if you go to my LinkedIn profile, it starts with husband and father. That's really important. So yeah, I'm married to Penny, who is South African. She's a psychotherapist who used to be a graphic designer, but has now switched careers. At home, we have Danny and April, 12 and 11. And I suppose one of the connections that I made perhaps with you was that a couple of years ago, Danny was suffering at school. And your little story just now about Ben rang a lot of bells. I mean, Danny is very bright. You know, he he reads a book in just under an hour normally um, and can answer questions on it. You know, he beats me at chess nine times out of 10 now, but he wasn't doing well at school, particularly in his writing. And I'd never heard of dysgraphia. And we went and had him tested with a, a, a a psychologist. And it turns out that he has hypermobility. So his thumb and finger can't grip a pencil properly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he was in the bottom 1% of, you know, all children as regards this hypermobility thing. So they got him a laptop and stopped him having to write with a pen and pencil in class. And he's flying now. And this to me was, was a real eye opener, you know, because we had no idea that this was even a thing. I'd never really heard of hypermobility or whatever. So some experience in this this area of kind of, he was almost getting labeled as intellectually challenged, even though he's one of the brightest kids in the class probably, because he couldn't write, because he couldn't fill in the, the stuff that they were writing. Whereas now he's mastered PowerPoint, he's mastered Word, he's mastered Canva, um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, is is off to the races. So So that's... Yeah, university professor. I had a career in big business up until 2000-ish and then switched into a portfolio career. So so I created a master's program in project management for the business school here in Dublin and have run that for about 20 years now, um, growing it to two programs. So we have a master's full-time and then a a part-time master's for post-experience students. Um, In terms of the online learning space, it was an awful thing. But from a teaching point of view, it was also a huge opportunity because it forced us online. And I'd been thinking for a few years, I want to explore this online thing. You know, I haven't really done it much. Everything was in person and all the rest of it. Anyway, you know, come just before Paddy's Day, what was it, 2020, when we all got sent home because, because of COVID, we, we had, fortunately, in Ireland, because Patrick's Day is a, is a holiday for the week. Yeah, we, we kind of got a week's gap between being sent home on the Thursday and having to kind of go back into class online. So thank goodness for that. I mean, places around the world that didn't get that gap, they just had the weekend, didn't they, really, to kind of flip the whole classroom into, into the online space. But we did. We did, along with everybody else. And we learned a lot about creating 
engaging online learning spaces. That propelled me into universal design for learning. I went and did a couple of courses on UDL and kind of got myself up to speed on that. In my corporate career, I was an IT manager. So, you know, I'm reasonably tech savvy. So pulling all the computery bits together, the webcams and the all that, the Zoom and all that kind of stuff came naturally to me. That's a happy place for me to play in. But I also translated that into my other kind of one of my other passions, which is photography and particularly teaching photography. Whatever I do, I end up teaching it. I, I think I'm just fundamentally an educator. So I started teaching photography online before that was a thing. So right at the start of COVID, and I wrote to every camera club in Ireland and said, hey, you don't know it, but you're out of business in terms of meeting in the church hall, you know, for the next few months. Uh, but I can I can do you talks online. And I got 12 bookings that first weekend. And uh, I think you're reading a slightly out of date web page because it's, it's over 500 talks that I've done since COVID started <laughs> to camera clubs all around the world. And that's not including all the corporate training that I do and the college sessions and all the rest of it. So, you know, it's got to be well over a thousand online online teaching sessions of one kind or another. So it's a, it's a space I love. I can sit in my kitchen or, you know, as I am here up in the study and, you know, we're talking and it doesn't matter where you are in the world. It doesn't matter, you know, mm-hmm don't matter distance doesn't matter and we can collaborate we can engage so i love the online space it's challenging you've got to connect you've got to make it interesting it moved me into much shorter sessions i mean one of the things i always do with all my college students for instance you know if we've got a three-hour block i mean if I had to sit for three hours and listen to somebody talk at me on Zoom, I think I would, you know, it's just that death by PowerPoint multiplied by, you know, a factor of 10, isn't it? Um, so we break every hour. So we have a 10 to 15 minute break each hour. So it's like 45, 50 minutes, and then a 15 minute break, and then another 45, 50 minutes. Uh, but in that 45, 50 minutes, we'll probably do a couple of breakout sessions. So there'll be a bit of me talking, there'll be a breakout, you come back. There'll be some plenary discussion. People share their screens and stuff like that. We might do a Mentimeter or a Kahoot or something like that. You know, so lots of variation, breaking things up into small chunks. Because, I mean, that's what we're used to, isn't it? I mean, TV. I mean, I say to all my students when they're putting presentations together, don't have anything up on screen for more than about 15 seconds. Because when you're watching Sky News or you're watching, you know, whatever it is that you like to watch, Things don't just sit on the screen. We've got this very short visual attention span now. And as educators, we have to pick up on these cues from mainstream media and whatever and build this stuff into what we're doing. So having some kind of a visual eye with the photography end of things, that translates into all the other education as well. And then hopefully bringing in, as I've done in the last couple of years, a little bit more awareness of accessibility. Because, again, that was a bit of a, you know, moment for me. One one day when one of my students came up to me and said that he was dyslexic and he identified he, he hadn't signed up with the college disability service or whatever. I, I always say at the beginning of all my classes now, okay, I say, you know, there's no such thing as a silly question in these classes. I'm trying to make this a safe space 
for you to experiment and try things and fail and you know try again and all the rest of it. I said, we're all different and we all have different challenges and some are visible and some are invisible. Okay. And, you know, so there may be neurodiverse people in the audience. There might be people with dyslexia or dysgraphia or all these other different things. And everything is okay. And that seems to really resonate with a lot of students. Because, I mean, I've heard, you probably know better than me, but I mean, I've heard various numbers thrown about of 10 to 20% of any class has got some kind of, whether you call it disability or challenge of some kind. But how many of those actually register? with the college or let you know that so few, so few. Right. So we have so many people in our learning environments that are facing some kind of a challenge. And if we make it safe for them to sh tell us about that challenge or share, maybe just with us, that you know, rather than the whole class, but whatever, then at least we've got, you know, a chance to kind of put in place accommodations. And that's where UDL comes in, because hopefully you design your courses so that you don't need to put accommodations in place because they're already there. You've already set your course up in an accessible manner and stuff like that. So this is the this is the space that I'm in at the moment is trying to make sure that my education spaces are accessible, are designed properly, are fun and engaging. Yeah, so that's kind of where I'm at at the moment. That's that's way too long of an intro. <laughs> no, that's wonderful. That's it shows that you're really thinking about how your instruction is impacting your student and I love that that you're giving them that safe space. Hey, I don't care whether you register with a college or not. We're going to accommodate as much as we can to help it make sure that you are able to learn. I go back and I'm I'm always talking about my daughter on this podcast because she's just like the one that always comes to my mind. But she had an accident when she was in her fall of her senior year at the undergrad. And there was one professor that mm. would not give any accommodation. This was before COVID. And everybody else was great except this one professor. And fortunately for her, it was one of those general ed courses that she just had to get finished with. And it really didn't impact her overall grade as well. But she was able to go back to the disabilities department and say, this is what he said to me. And it helped the university educate him before this the whole COVID thing. And then, of course, COVID changed so much more. But I love that you're using Kahoot. I love that you're creating breakout rooms and those kind of discussions. Those are going to make it so much easier for, especially for adult learners. Yeah. Adults, I know this is going to sound funny, but sometimes I think adults have shorter attention spans than the kids. Yeah. Yeah. And they've, they've got their email up on another window and they've got their phones mm -hmm trying to multitask and they don't realize that multitasking doesn't work. Um, no, it's you, That's a falsality. It's you can't multitask. You can switch task. You yeah. can't multitask. I mean, I think as a learner, there's a, there's another podcast um, that, that I was on a little while ago, um, the Think UDL podcast with Lillian Nave. And uh, she always asks at the start of her podcast, she says, what makes you a different kind of learner? 
And I think that's a great question to open uh, open a discussion with. And certainly as I've got older, and I'm next week I'm 60, so that's a big one. Um, but certainly as I've got older, I've, I've realized that I think in a quite a structured way. And so now when I kind of engage with a new topic, what I, what I tend to do is write down stuff that I already know and then find where the gaps are and try and go fill those in. And that naturally builds a table of contents. And what I've, what I've started to do is then write these up. So I've now written six books, three on photography, three on other stuff. And this chap who came up to me and talked about his dyslexia, that stopped me in my tracks because I realized that I'd been teaching college for almost 20 years. And I'd never really thought properly about accessibility and how it affected the students in my classes. Mm. I've got this awful, overwhelming sense of guilt that for 20 years, I'd had 50, 60, 70 students coming through my classes. And maybe five to 10, 15 of those each year probably had something that I could maybe have helped with better. And I hadn't because I was ignorant. And it was maybe like your your professor that I wasn't necessarily trying to be obstructively ignorant. I just didn't know what I didn't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think the didn't know what you didn't know was part of it. You now have an awareness and you're able to change the outlook of what your classroom looks like. I do believe that COVID has opened an awareness because of the virtual space for universal design learning across all grade levels from pre-K all the way through adult learning. So there are some amazing things that have happened because of COVID in the education system. Yeah, we have a little time to catch up to the changes that are being implemented, but I do believe that it, it was kind of strategically placed by God because we needed to have a somebody kick us in the butt. <laughs> well, it was overdue, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's yeah. just the 18th century, you yeah. know. Yeah. So you brought up a, a comment about feeling guilty after 20 years. Listeners, if you go back to where Jennifer Porter talks about her daughter, she was a special education teacher. Her first degree was English. Then she got her master's in special ed. And so she worked special ed across all grade levels, K to 12. And she has a daughter who was profoundly dyslexic, dysgraphic, and dyscalculic, who is now in college. But she's like said the same thing. She had this profound guilt that she didn't know what to do for her own child because she did not know. And she believes the same as you is she could have totally changed her classroom to meet the needs of students much better if she better understood her own child. Yeah. And certainly that's been the case with me to some extent. I mean, I'm I'm still on that journey. But, mm-hmm. you know, seeing Danny engage with different things as he goes through his educational experience at school now and he's going to big school you know he's in sixth class at the moment in in the irish system so he's moving up to this kind of secondary school uh, next year so it's going to be a very interesting 
you know, journey that we all go on because we now are much, hopefully much more alongside him, if you like, you know, and and aware of potential challenges that he's going to be facing. But that journey with Danny also sharpens me up as an educator with my students, my, my college students, and also my adult students, my, my, my photography students. Towards the start of COVID, you know, I mean, I, I, I used to be a software engineer. So I kind of, I hunt through the nooks and crannies of programs that I use. You know, it's a bit like kind of, you know, reading the manual. Well, I go through all the menus and I have a look and see what all the different options on all the menus do. So I knew that in PowerPoint, you could turn on subtitles. There's many people who've used PowerPoint for years who still don't know that you can turn subtitles on in PowerPoint. (laughs) I actually actually did. I I have a newsletter on um, AI in education that I publish once a week. And and the last couple have been about accessibility things. And the, the latest one that I released this afternoon actually has this tip in it about turning on subtitles when you're running a PowerPoint slide deck. And it's dead easy to do. It's just a checkbox. Okay. And it just puts them down at the bottom of the screen. Everybody can read them. So I did this because I'd been made aware that a lady at one of the Scottish camera clubs that I was doing a presentation to on long exposure photography, I think it was, was hard of hearing. So I just, at the start of the meeting, I said, I, I hope nobody minds, but I'm going to turn on subtitles because I believe there's a few people in the audience who might be hard of hearing and it might just help. And she emailed me back after the, the talk. And she said nobody else had ever done that on any of the camera club talks. And it made so much difference that she enjoyed the evening. She could understand everything. She got so much more out of it. And we we actually started a conversation and became, you know, quite good friends. I've never met her, but we've, we've you know, remote friends, if you like. And, and I mean, that kind of lit, just little things like that. It was so easy for me to do, but it completely transformed her experience. Yeah, it's amazing what that does when you make those little changes. I'm learning more about that, but no, I did not know PowerPoint had a a checkbox for closed caption as well. And that was before COVID came into being. And wow. So, okay. So you taught me something today. Every day is a learning day. (laughs) Every day is a learning day. When I was looking through your profile, you have something that says the five tools to use when teaching to engage students. Tell me oh more. Oh, goodness. I can't even remember that. <laughs> now you put me on the spot. What are, what, are five t- what are five tools when teaching to engage it? I can't remember what they are. But, I mean, let, just off the top of my head, as, I, as I'm putting stuff together, with any teaching, the first question is, what, what does my audience need? Not what do I want to tell them? And I mean, you know, I teach business communications and all kinds of things. And I mean, this is what I always say when students are putting presentation together, you know, and they're coming to me and say, oh, we're going to do a presentation on, you know, the risk management of this project. And I say, yeah, okay, who's your audience? And they look at me and I say, well, it's the class. Yeah. And this is a class of project management students who are learning to be project managers. So your project presentation is going to be about Denver Airport's implementation of the baggage handling system and the risk associated with it. But what you really want to tell us is, as potential project managers, what can Denver Airport's handling of that project inform us about the use of risk in risk management in projects? How can we become better risk managers? 
How can you make me, an audience member, better at being a project manager if I give you 15 minutes of my time? And that's the key, isn't it? You know, you're asking me as an audience member to give you 15 minutes or three hours if it's a, you know, a full online session or whatever. I better be pretty certain I'm going to get something of value. So you start with value. What does my audience need from me? And you lead with that. So when you start your presentation, when you start your your chapter of your book, when you start talking, the first thing you should say is kind of like, right, guys, listen up, because the next 15 minutes is going to be useful. By the end of this 15 minutes, I'm going to give you six tips on how to risk manage a project more effectively. Now, we're going to do that through the lens of Denver International Airport, but but you're going to get six really actionable tips. So linking what your audience needs with what you want to tell them is really important. The the old saw, tell them what you're going to tell them. Tell them. Tell them what you told them. So that really simple breakdown, you know, it's not a detective novel. Online teaching shouldn't be a cliffhanger. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> because people don't have the mental kind of staying power for for cliffhangers like that. So upfront, tell them what they're there for, tell them what they're going to get, and then the exposition in the middle, and then the summary at the end, telling them the key points again. So you've hit with the main points three times, and three times really escalates retention. Then the old kind of cold learning cycle stuff you know, whether it's Colb that you use or whether it's any anybody else. But a bit of talking, send them off to discuss and do, bring them back to present and discuss and reflect. So tell, do, reflect, you know, that cycle. Try and break the death by PowerPoint, you know, push of information. At least once a year, I try and invite another professor into one of my lectures to just sit and critique the lecture. And Mm. what what I ask them to do is kind of like then sit down with me afterwards and make me a better lecturer. Okay. And it's it's always a bit of a challenge, you know, doing that because you're going to get critiqued and there's they're going to point things out that you know you're not doing as well as you might be. But it's a great building experience and and a colleague of mine, Alessio, a couple of years ago, very kindly did this. And after the the session, he said, "Joe," he said, "he said, great lecture, really interesting, lots of lots of good stuff." He said, "You talk too much," <laughs> <laughs> and I went, "Oh no, oh no, I know I do, I know I do." He said, "He said you were taking five or ten minutes to expound a point, to to make a point, and you would tell a story or two or three stories and and, and all the rest of it, but." These are bright students. They got it in the first minute. So tell them it, let them get it, and then send them off to talk about it rather than you giving them more. And I thought that was so good. I mean, that really, really stuck with me, that one. So I love storytelling. And I mean, I think that would probably be my number four would be, but always use stories. Stories are just such a good way of conveying because they give you a framework. They give you a hook. They give you an emotional response to whatever it is that you're talking about. And, and you know, if the stories that involve people and characters, you identify with them, and now you're linking it back to your own life 
and stuff like that. So, so these would be really important things to do. And then I suppose the last one, probably particularly from an online perspective, and I don't know whether, you know, people who are watching this podcast, if you're on lots of Zoom calls, very often people don't make very good eye contact with you. And I'm going to take my eye contact away now, okay? And I'm going to look down on my other screen, okay? So that's what they're doing, isn't it? They're looking down at their screen and they're not having the eye contact with you. So get yourself a setup for remote working where you can look at the eyes of the person you're talking to. So I have my MacBook Air sat on my desk on a little stand. Mm-hmm. And second screen, which is sitting above the MacBook Air. Okay, so it's on a it's on a raised platform. So, and you're on that second screen. So I've got got the Zoom window, gallery view, and you and me are next to each other. And then I bought myself a little webcam, which is on a stick, and it clips to the top of the screen, and the stick comes down, and then the webcam's kind of here, and it's about the size of a fingernail, and it just sits right in the middle of the screen. So I have that right next to you, yeah, on the screen. So I'm looking at you on the screen and the webcam sitting right next to you. So it looks brilliant. You've got eye contact. Yeah. So before we got all that fantastic center stage technology from Apple, you know, with where where it'll fix your eye contact and but this makes it so easy. And if I if I'm downstairs, I have a standalone webcam that I put on a tiny little tripod behind the laptop. Again, sticking further up. And then I look through that to a screen mounted on the wall. But again, the eye contact is through the camera to the back screen. And it helps you maintain that eye contact, which in in an online environment is so important because we automatically do it in a room. But in an online environment, it's more difficult to do. Yeah. Well, you technically are to my left. Right. So I can only see you what you're seeing out of the peripheral vision. Yes. I've been very concentrating on looking at my webcam so it appears that I'm looking at you. But yes. you see me every once in a while kind of glance off to the side, but I've tried not to do that. So hopefully that uh, those two ideas can help people. The other thing that my son always tells me about head position inside the, the screen is your eyes, if you cut the screen, your screen into nine spots, so you get two verticals and two horizontals, your Mm -hmm. eyes are supposed to be right there along that top line. And, you know, I have so many people who all you see is here up or something. And, you know, I do read lips a lot of times when I'm doing a discussion call with my clients. And, Sometimes it really does help to have your head there. <laughs> so I try to like have it so that my head is little touching bit. the top. Uh. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I don't know if those little tidbits are something that you as the listener are going, oh, I never thought about that. Or if this is, oh, yeah, he- I'm hearing it again. 
think about universal design and how that's going to impact your clients. Yes. Your students when you are engaging in the classroom. So thank you very much for those five tools. They were brilliant. <laughs> Excellent. Well, they came off the top of my head, I must admit, because I can't remember what they were well, when I <laughs> I do believe you have a handout on your profile that and that's where I got that from. So um you probably have something in your on your website somewhere that has some tools too. Oh, yeah. yeah. I put together a set of PDFs, um, single page PDFs at the start of COVID. We're so all that's probably uh, that may have different tools on there than what we just spoke on, but it doesn't matter. All of the tools are going to be amazing for you as the listener. You're going to go, oh, one thing I'm noticing today is lighting. I think that the clouds and the sun are going a mile a minute. And every once in a while, I feel like this room is getting very dark. And the next moment, I feel like the sun is in my eyes. Mm. I have natural lighting to my left. I have artificial lighting behind the screen and off to my right. But yet, I still feel like there's a shadow constantly on the left side of my face. So hopefully, you don't feel it, but I do. I feel the sun passing through by those clouds today. Wow. Bit bit of shadow. You know, I mean, if you look at my face and you draw a line down the middle, this side is lit because I have a light. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now I've never, you know, I'm I'm just front lit because now the, the side that isn't lit this side is, is a bit darker. So mm-hmm. a little bit of side lighting can be quite effective, you know, but, but you, want, you, you want the lighting. Well, I, do have, I do have lighting balance, but it just feels like the natural light today is not doing its, is creating a shadow today. So for yeah. those of you who are listening to the audio, that doesn't mean anything to you. But when we're thinking about video, and we're thinking about teaching. Those are things to think about. I mean, now that COVID has kind of passed over and like we're through that crucial, people are hearing more about webcam positioning, lighting, microphone. They're hearing more about those things than they did before. One thing I've got to say about online world is I was using Zoom long before March of 2020. And it was funny, nobody would turn on their webcam until that day. Then everyone turned on their webcam. It was the most difficult thing to do is to get somebody to get on the Zoom call with me and turn on their webcam. Because nobody liked being on camera, but we just had to because that was the only way you got to see people. And then then you noticed that about a year into COVID, We went through a period where people were kind of turning the the webcams off again because they were getting so tired. Because, yeah, getting that blue, the webcam blue uh, eye reflection uh, fatigue. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, And and now I think people have become maybe acclimatized to being on video and seeing themselves on video more so that I'm seeing that it's less of a barrier to many people. Yes. It is a barrier still to some people. So you have to allow for that. Mm-hmm. You know, and I will always encourage people on a call. I'll say, you know, look, if you can turn your camera on and engage, 
I can see you, you can see me, you'll be able to read my lips, we'll get probably better engagement and all the rest of it. It also makes it kind of unconsciously, you're much less likely to go multitasking if you know you can. Because if your camera's off, you're just kind of, oh, yeah, I'll just do a quick email there and I'll just respond to that message and, and all these other things. Whereas, you know, if, if you're on camera, you know you can be seen and you'll be much less likely to do that. So there's a lot of benefits. But some people are uncomfortable on camera for, you know, extended. Maybe just say, well, you know, if, if you're going to contribute to the conversation, maybe just pop your camera on while you, while you talk to us. That'd be great. You know, it would be nice to see you. Something like that. Yeah. So So again, I think you've got to be careful to be accepting of difference like that, haven't you? Yeah. So shifting this subject just a little bit, we've been talking a lot about storytelling. How have you helped Danny with his dyscrapia in relationship to storytelling? Have you used that as a tool to help him? Or has he gotten nat- just been naturally gifted once he got the computer technology that it just took off? He's always been a storyteller. He actually liked writing stories. And I mean, even though he has this challenge with his, you know, manipulation of a pen and a pencil, he's actually written in the last few months. Yeah, he's actually, he started writing a little book of stories. And it's a super science fiction kind of story that he's, he's, and he's bringing in lots of different concepts and stuff because he's a voracious reader. So he's pulling in, you know, themes and contexts from all the different mythologies that he loves, as well as science fiction and, you know, all the rest of it. But it's what's been really interesting to me is that he's written this. He's written this with a pen, even though his writing is difficult. But his stories are in here and he wants to get them out. And he's not naturally going to the computer to put them down. He's going to pen and paper. Now, you know, we've got him in typing lessons. He's up to 30 words a minute now on a keyboard and stuff. So he's getting to be quite good at typing and he's very happy on the keyboard. But it's been interesting to see that he's actually gone back to pen and paper to do that writing. And I mean, he sees me writing all the time, you know. Daddy's writing his current book and all the rest of it. So maybe there's a bit of that, you know, Danny wants to do what daddy's doing. But it's, I thought it was really interesting that even with this, and I mean, does that, is that hypermobility, is that, does that put him into the dysgraphia camp, if you like? Does dysgraphia cover that physical thing as well? I wasn't sure whether it did or not. So, well, anything that, has another diagnosis, usually the other diagnosis is the issue and the result of the other diagnosis is the illegible handwriting. But it's very interesting that you say that he's going back to that. So part of dysgraphia is that that they can't remember how to write a certain letter or they're not quite sure the syntax of a sentence or they're like trying to really remember the vocabulary, the spelling rule that goes with that vocabulary word to get it down on paper correctly. And so some, a lot of the pause has to do with the lack of memory. Right. Well, that's and, not, because Danny has, Danny's vocabulary is brilliant and he's, yeah command of English and sentence structure and all the rest of it is, is almost as good as mine, you know. So he doesn't have that. He just has this physical challenge of mm-hmm. 
manipulation, manipulation of the pen nib or the... So because the memory is not the issue, he is then able to take and translate the part that is difficult and and work on strengthening the motor function so that he can later in life engage more in the handwritten part too. I notice when I'm writing story that I like to write it out by hand first and then put it to computer and I kind of edit it from one process to the the second, give it a little bit more uh, understanding. And then I go back again, do another edit. And sometimes it's up to 10 edits before it's to a point of where I'd like to share it with somebody else. But I often will do that. Although I know that there are times when my handwriting, I can't even read it. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I'm going, what did I say there? Oh, uh, okay. Well, I got the context. Okay. I'm going to just create something new. And helping kids get through that barrier, like I, I don't remember what that word is, but they can figure out and get through it, helps with perseverance, helps with grit, helps with that don't quit attitude. And I think that's one of the things that Danny is overcoming is he's getting past that lack of perseverance, lack of grit. And he's showing, I am not going to let this put me down. I am going to overcome it, even though it's hard. And so kudos to him for facing the difficulty. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I found it, you know, really strange because, I mean, I naturally go to the keyboard. I mean, I I dictate or I type in. I almost never write longhand now because I just think into a computer. But yeah, it's been been fascinating seeing Danny do that. Now, he still doesn't go to the math. I mean, I think it's almost the math side, the figures Mm -hmm. that, more difficult for him to write. He seems to be getting a handle on writing words now. But the math, I mean, he contorts his hand and he's twisted up and all the rest. And it's obviously, you know, head wrecking um, for him, the math particularly with the handwriting. So so maybe that's just something slightly different and aligned. Yeah. Symbols are sometimes harder because I use the idea of a word search here. Mm. When you're With a word search, when you do a lettered-based word search, there's patterns involved. When you do a number-based word search, the patterns aren't quite, aren't the same. Yes, there are patterns, but they're not the same as they are with writing. So getting those patterns of numbers, they change all the time. Yes. And so that might be part of it is the fluency is just not there yet to make it an automatic response. So you need the two top tier of the handwriting are fluency and automaticity, how quickly and how fluid is the process. So he might still be trying to think through if we do an algebra problem and we have to worry about the parentheses before we do this. Yes. It still might not be in that fluid state. I sometimes when I get to those complicated uh, algebra problems, I'm going, child, help me, help mom, because she's a uh, calculus guru at this point. But she writes Python code. So she's seeing 
all of those things. And she does a lot digitally. As a matter of fact, did you know that there's a, uh, this might help him. There is a thing called uh, math type, math type or type math. I'm not, I think it's math type that will actually convert word into a place that you can write mathematical equations. Right. Oh, well, have a look at that. Yeah. Super. Yeah. So that might be good for a, a listener as well. That that math type is out there. That one does cost a little bit of money. I know there's some other programs. That's the one that she used when she was in high school. This was even before COVID. Both of my kids went to a cyber school for high school. So they had that as part of their program. So that's where she learned it. And it really did help when she went into college because she was able to keep the program. Now, once we purchased it, we were able to keep it and she was able to use it to do her calculus when she got into college. Yeah. And I, I know when I kind of wrote my latest book, which is on the kind of accessibility, the link with accessibility in UDL and AI, that, that I've got many, many examples of helpful apps, programs scattered throughout that um, as we examine all the different conditions that, that the book looks at. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm looking at the time and I'm like, oh my gosh, did we really talk for an, an an hour about accessibility and some of the things my, my listeners are going to go crazy when, because normally these are about a half an hour. So forgive me, everyone. This has been an absolutely enjoyable conversation with Joe Hewton today. Before we go, is there anything last moment that you'd like to add to the conversation? No, no. I mean, just just it's been great talking and uh, thank you very much for having me. And um, I'm looking forward to staying in touch, Sherry, because uh, I think, uh, you know, what you offer has certainly opened my eyes to a lot of things I didn't know, you know, to those, those unknown unknowns. So uh, I shall be staying in touch and, and keeping a close eye on the podcast going forward. Well, thank you. I do want to share this with the audience is that we are going to reverse roles where I will be on your podcast in the near future as well. We're not recording that episode today. We're going to record that another day to help clear our minds so that we can think uh, and have something new. And we're going to pull uh, my co-author for Math Disconnected onto that episode. And so Jenna Lee will be on there. So the three of us will have a conversation about universal design and storytelling, I am sure. The Writing Glitch is released on the second and fourth Tuesday of every month during the school year. Please write a review for the podcast. I don't say this enough. Write a review. It means so much. It will pull up the ratings so that more teachers, more parents, and more therapists will find it. You can go to thewritingglitch.com and you can see what previous episodes have been published. And remember, You were put here for such a time as this. And thank you to Sam C. Productions for managing the post-production of this podcast. And thank you, Joe Hewton, for being here and tolerating misunderstanding of time differences between London and Pennsylvania. (laughs) 